economic growth actually means that people can live healthier, more fulfilling lives. They can live longer. They can invest in other goals besides, they can afford to invest in other goals besides material accumulation. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, why is Britain's economy stagnant? The UK economy has experienced an extraordinary lost decade of economic growth, and according to latest projections, is not expected to recover particularly substantially over the coming years. The UK, on a per capita basis, is now about one-fifth poorer than the average German and about one-third poorer than the average American. To discuss this central economic issue, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Tyler Goodspeed. He's an economist and fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors to the President of the United States. And he also has a PhD from both Harvard University and the University of Cambridge. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Good to be with you, Matthew. So Tyler, before we get into some of the kind of recent events in, in uh, British and American economic history, I wonder if you could tell us a little about why economic growth actually matters. I think this point has been lost. Um, and you hear a lot these days about how you know, growth isn't everything, how you know, we have all these other social goals. What does economic growth actually mean? I mean? Economic growth actually means that people can live healthier, more fulfilling lives. They can live longer. They can invest in other goals besides they can afford to invest in other goals besides material accumulation and I, I think that's why we actually see a lot of other outcomes besides growth start to become prioritized when people are richer because they can afford to, to pursue those other objectives those other goals that's why pollution actually tends to go down in the, the, the more developed economies are we saw that uh, in much of the, the Western economies uh, after after the 1960s, 1970s, they started caring more about pollution, investing more in pollution production. And I think that's something that, that a higher standard of living affords affords one to be able to do. Mm. I mean, it's the, the basket of goods that you can buy at the supermarket. It's the, the fact that uh, British politics, I think, over the last decade has been quite zero sum because there's just less to go around. If you're going to spend more on pensioners, that means you have to tax working people more uh, you know, if you want more for the NHS, some, you might have to allocate less to criminal justice. You know, the, the fact that politics is so challenging in some ways, I think, can be related to the fact that you haven't had the growth. There isn't more economics, economic resources to go around. We don't have the capacity to buy everything that we want in the UK as a result of that low growth. Yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm glad you put it in those terms of, about the size of the basket, because that's something that really stands out when you live in the United States and then you live in Europe, in Western Europe, because when you actually live in both places, you come to recognize that at any point in the income distribution, the, the basket of goods that you can afford to buy on, on that income in, in Western Europe is just smaller. And you, know, the, you see it in the GDP per capita data, as you pointed out, that the, the UK and most of Western Europe is, 25 to 35% poorer per person than in the United States. And that basically means a, a sort of 30% smaller basket of goods that you can afford, the typical person can afford to buy. Hmm. And, and I suppose that then the central question that Charlie is why? What explains this 
the, I suppose, divergence in economic growth between kind of Western Europe, between uh, even to a large extent the UK uh, and the US? So to a certain extent, long run economic growth is a little bit arithmetic. You're, you're adding up the, the, the growth in the potential supply factors in an economy. So that's how many potential workers are there, what percentage of them are working, how much are they working, and how much physical capital are you investing in them to be able to work with, how much human capital are you investing in them to be able to work with, and then there's sort of a residual, which is just productivity growth that's unrelated to, or that can't be explained by the amount of human capital or the amount of physical capital in the economy. And, and productivity growth, where does it come from? Uh, some of it is just people working together in high productivity areas. That, I mean, this, is, this sort of goes back to, to some of that Adam Smith's observations about specialization extent of the market. But, uh, but ultimately it comes down to what percent, how, how many people are working and how much capital do they have to work with and how fast is, is productivity growth rising? And, and so what we've seen in, in the UK in recent years, uh, in recent decades is there's sort of a demographic headwind in that with population growth slowing and the population aging, you have sort of peak cohorts of earlier generations entering retirement age, those folks are exiting the labor force and they're bringing with them a lot of, of human capital that was acquired over the course of a career. So that's sort of a demographic headwind. Hmm. On the physical capital front, the UK has, has faced another headwind in that your effective tax rates on corporate income are pretty high. Earlier in the, in the 2010s, you lowered the statutory rate of taxation on corporate income, but at the same time, you lengthened the period over which companies uh, had to deduct for depreciation of, exist, of, of new capital investments. So, you, so even though you're lowering the statutory rate, you're actually raising the effective tax rate for businesses. And then on the, the productivity front, it's, it's a little bit hard to explain uh, because some, some of productivity growth is the composition of the workers uh, that are entering the labor force. Some of productivity growth is, as I said, how much capital do they have to work with? And then there's sort of this unexplained part of productivity growth. And, and I think with, with the UK, sort of all three of those elements of, of productivity growth have, have been stalling in, in recent decades. Yes, yeah, so, so we have the kind of the natural headwind uh, in the economy, that kind of aging population, and, and it's even it was exaggerated during COVID, where you had uh, that kind of early retirement phenomenon, so a reduced workforce and a reduced skilled workforce, indeed, and that's something the government's been quite interested in addressing. Um, and then your your point there about, and I think it's quite essentially important, interesting about the extent to which the UK tax system has not been particularly favourable uh, to investment. Now, the, the government has announced uh, in in the recent budget last month that they're effectively doing a bit of a swap here. So that they, they, they were maintaining their policy uh, that starts even this week to put up the corporate tax rate from uh, 19 to 25%, but at the same time, uh, are bringing in a more generous capital deduction system. Do you think that's kind of a, a positive step on net? Uh, or, or is it, uh, how do those things, I suppose, balance each other out that kind of higher rate, but with the, the more generous deductions? 
So I, I thought it was it was a successful marketing campaign in the rollout of, of the budget because they they sort of sold this full expensing of new capital investments as something that was transformational. But let's be clear what what it was, what it is, is a shift from businesses being able to deduct 130% of the cost of new capital investments in the, the year in which that capital investment the super deduction as it was called. Uh, to 100%. Secondly, it's temporary. Uh, as you said, I think it's three years. So that's not going to do anything to change the long run capital stock of the UK. It's just going to pull some investment forward. Third, it was sold as broad expensing for capital investment, but really it was for qualified capital investments. And in particular, it was about machinery. They said plant and plant and machinery, but but buildings, factories, other structures are not included in this. So this is a this is a very narrow sliver of capital assets uh, that, that qualify for this. Intellectual property doesn't qualify. A lot of other asset types don't qualify. Hmm. And then finally, yes, as you as you noted, they they the budget introduced that temporary measure for qualifying assets. And then at the same time, it raised the statutory corporate tax rate from 19% to 25%, which now places the UK above the, the European average, above the OECD average. And in, in terms of specific headwinds, one type of capital investment that is really costly in the UK is investing in structures. It's it's hard to get planning permission. That's a it's a that takes a long time. So there are costs involved there. And then also companies in the UK, if they invest in a building, they or if they invest in an oil rig, they only get to deduct in present value terms about thirty nine percent of the cost of that capital investment. And and the spring budget did nothing to to attenuate that that prohibitive that cost prohibitive aspect of UK corporate tax. So you were you were the White House during a period of quite, uh, I suppose, extraordinary and, and in some respects, I suppose, unexpected economic expansion and quite sustained and, and successful economic expansion during that those Trump years and, and quite involved in, in the, the was it the Jobs and, and Growth Act um, over that over that time. I don't know if you could yeah, contrast that approach, which did seem to be quite effective in terms of delivering economic growth with what the UK is getting. So, yeah, so for most of the, the recovery from the 2008 to 2009 financial crisis, the U.S. recovery looked a lot like that of the U.K.'s. It was an historically slow recovery with anemic investment growth, which is anomalous. Usually when you have a deep recession, you come bounding out of it with a big, big, sharp recovery in investment. And we also had not only declining labor force participation, among older workers, we knew that, we saw that trend coming uh, because the peak cohort of the baby boom generation over here was 1957. Those folks all turned 62 in 2019. So that's sort of a, a peak year for people exiting the labor force. But we also in the United States between 2009 and 2016 saw 1.6 million prime age Americans between the age of, ages of 25 and 54 leave the labor force which was, was pretty striking. And so in 2017, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we, we lowered the cost of capital for businesses by lowering the statutory corporate tax rate, which at the federal level was at an insanely high 35%. And we, we introduced full expensing for, for equipment investment. And we saw 
investment in the U.S. rise to a level by, by the end of 2019, so on the, the eve of the pandemic, investment in the U.S. was about 10% above its pre-2017 trend. And also what we did is across the board, we, we, lowered, uh, we lowered marginal personal income tax rates, and we, we offset that in part by eliminating or capping a lot of other tax expenditures in, in the tax code. Because in the U.S., even to a greater extent than in the U.K., federal policymakers love to do what's effectively spending but do it through the tax code. And that can have very distortionary effects. It can introduce a lot of tax cliffs. Um, we followed in 2017, what I would call tax policy 101, tax principles 101 is, it's usually best to, to lower marginal rates and broaden the base, especially if you wanna increase labor force participation. So that's what we did. And sure enough, we saw a, a pretty strong rebound in labor force participation across all age cohorts but actually in particular among older workers whom research suggests tend to be more responsive to changes in marginal personal income tax rates. And, and, and data costs in another respect, the UK is on the opposite here, which is not only leaving in place the, the controversial 45p tax rate, but also freezing the income tax thresholds, which is going to pull millions of people into paying tax, but also uh, millions of people into paying higher rates of tax on their income. Yes, and those rates in the UK, I mean, I lived in the UK for the better, better part of a decade, and, and I just remember vividly, those rates kick in very quickly. So in the UK, you're only earning, you only have to be earning 3.4 times the national average wage before you face the, the top all-in personal income tax rate, whereas in the US, you have to be earning eight and a half times the national average wage before you're facing those top marginal rates. So so really, it's it's middle income earners who who get get really sought with uh, by the UK tax code. Yeah, and unfortunately, and maybe discussion for another day, we don't get that much value out of it in terms of the quality of public services in the UK for all the all the tax we pay. It's not the central problem here, which is keeping taking more money. But Lynch, I'm just seeing you know as well from the the kind of um, York seems the White House is more on the regulatory side. So there were there were tax reforms. But there was also, my best understanding, a big effort to try to reduce the kind of scale and, and scope and burden of the regulatory state, something which is perhaps talked about less when it comes to business um, issues than tax, but is a substantial cost um, and also must have a big impact on productivity and, and economic growth. It does. And, and there's sort of the, when we think about the costs of regulation, we tend to think about the direct compliance costs or the paperwork costs. But those are actually a tiny fraction of the costs of, of regulation. The bigger costs are some of the spillover effects that you're trying to rate. You're, you're distorting the flow of resources between sectors. You're also creating regulatory barriers to entry because a lot of a lot of these these costs of, of complying with regulation involve large upfront fixed costs. And so once you've incurred that cost. You know, it's it's just you spread it over multiple years of revenue. So for incumbent firms, you know, it's a one-off. It's sort of a one-off cost. But for new firms that may be a little bit, you know, liquidity or cash constrained, uh, it can be a real deterrence to, to to entry. And so we actually, in the 2020 economic report of the president, we analyzed just 20 
major deregulatory actions that have been undertaken by the Trump administration and estimated that those 20 deregulatory actions alone would ultimately save the average American household $1,900 per year. Wow, quite an extraordinary uh, set of kind of costs and benefits when it comes to regulation. Um, while I have you tell that, I wanted to um, ask you questions, ask you thoughts on a, on a few other issues I've seen you've been writing about recently. I recently had a, a piece I noted in the Wall Street Journal kind of discussing the Silicon Valley bank collapse and, and arguing that, in fact, banking regulation is potentially to some extent to blame for the crisis. Now, I think the narrative is pushed in the other direction. There's quite prominent idea that, well, the real reason Silicon Valley Bank failed is because um, they managed to successfully lobby to be below the threshold for more intensive banking regulation. Um, why do you think that's not the case? So that's not the case because the 2018 Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, which is the, the piece of legislation that has been referred to, it raised the, the threshold, the asset threshold for designation as a systemically important financial institution from $50 billion to $250 billion. However, it also preserved the discretionary authority of the Federal Reserve to continue to conduct enhanced stress testing of financial institutions with over $100 billion in assets. 2022, SVB, uh, their assets rose above $100 billion. And indeed, in 2022, early 2022, the Federal Reserve conducted stress tests for financial institutions, bank holding companies with more than $100 billion in assets. So if they wanted to, the regulators could have stress tested SVB. Um, the, the, the additional sort of irony is that even if they had, even if federal reg regulators had exercised their, their discretionary authority to conduct enhanced stress testing on SVB, it's not clear that they would have, that would have made any difference because the, the, the severely adverse scenario that the Fed mandated bank holding companies simulate in 2022 was a decline in interest rates. So this is at, at the very same time that the Federal Reserve itself is aggressively hiking interest rates. Indeed, they're hiking interest rates at the most aggressive pace in 40 years. The regulatory side of the Fed is asking banks to model a scenario in which interest rates go down. And so a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, whose big misstep was that they were they had old-fashioned duration risk. They had a lot of U.S. Treasury bonds, long-dated long U.S. Treasury bonds, whose value declined a lot when interest rates went up. And so SVB would have actually sailed through the 2022 stress test. So I, I think it's just a complete uh, myth that, that deregulatory changes, regulatory changes in 2022 had anything whatsoever to do with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. I would add to that that actually I think the 2018 change was designed in part to pr promote greater diversity in US banking because the sort of one size fits all approach to regulation that we're gonna administer the same test to, the, to all financial institutions, we're gonna have the same metrics for passing those tests, runs the risk that banks increasingly look the same. And so any adverse shock any regulatory error, any parameter misspecification is going to be multiple, multiplied yeah. across the financial uh, architecture. This is the kind of irony of the, the structure of modern banking regulation, which is 
it, it almost aims to reduce risk at an individual bank level, um, you know, apply all these kind of risk assessments and monitoring processes. But at the same time, in the exactly the same way, it creates systematic risk that, that once the wave comes that um, hits, hits the banks, in this case, rising interest rates, um, it, it hits them hard, it hits them all in the same way. So the, the regulations become pro-cyclical. They, they, they push out and, and encourage more financial crises. Um, and I think we saw this to some extent in the UK when it came to the LDI crisis and the pension funds, where all the pension funds effectively had the same, exactly the same vulnerability when it came to rising interest rates because of the way they had made um, uh, bets through the LDI system. Effectively the same issue to some extent, I guess, with uh, the likes of Credit Suisse, where the, the, they've all got the same vulnerability and the, the regulations aren't working. How can the regulations encourage diversity then? What would a diverse bank, banking system look like? So I think it's important to have well capitalized, a well-capitalized banking system. I also think it's important to have a banking system in which you have different banks doing different things. Diversification is important. <laughs> and so if I, if I were to advise on how to, to, to improve our financial regulatory architecture, I would probably advise moving toward a, a, a simpler, higher unweighted capital ratio. So just require that banks hold more capital and stop trying to micromanage. Well, we think this is a less risky asset. This is a more risky asset. If you hold these assets, then you can you can have more leverage. If you hold those assets, then then maybe not as much leverage. Because part of the reason, I mean, we saw this in the the eurozone crisis, the euro area crisis in the early 2010s, is that part of the reason a lot of European banks were holding so much Italian and Greek debt was because they had been told by the ECB that Greek debt was as good as German bonds. And so I think this idea that regulators can micromanage and, and identify what is a risk-free or safe asset is, is misguided because an asset is relatively risk-free until it's not. I mean, we just saw that with U.S. Treasuries that, yes, U.S. Treasuries are, are, safe, are, are safe against default risk, but they're not safe against duration risk, and duration risk uh, can, can come back and bite you. So I noticed you had a, a separate article in The Telegraph uh, in the UK context, um, having a bit of a discussion about the Bank of England um, and the extent to which the, there seems to be a phenomenon of groupthink within the organization, despite its, its arguably abject failings in recent history when it comes to inflation, but also financial stability as well. And if you think it's something like the, the LDI crisis has some level of responsibility for, uh, or the Bank of England has some level of responsibility for ensuring financial stability. Yeah, so I, I think with, with an institution as with as with a, a banking system, some some intellectual diversity is is usually helpful because it just means that you have different perspectives, you've observed different risks. And, and when you look at the composition of the Bank of England's primary policy committees, there's a lot of, of professional homogeneity there that, that folks came up through either the bank itself or HM Treasury. And so I think that there's a risk when you don't have adequate intellectual diversity that errors are going to be correlated across policymakers. And I think we, we saw that with, with the Bank of England who were slow to react to and respond to the, the inflationary dynamic that was developing, clearly developing in, in 2021. And I, I just don't see how 
well, I guess, I guess when, when everyone has come up through the same system and they adhere to the same models and they are accustomed to the same models and those models are wrong, they're all going to make the same mistake. And whereas over here, and we, we actually saw something similar with the Federal Reserve, although the Federal Reserve was, was I think, a little bit quicker to act. Um, they're a little bit more intellectually diverse at the top, but there's a lot of homogeneity and groupthink there as well. Mm. One, one final issue I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts on is, is probably the biggest conflict at the moment, at least in the economic policy space between uh, Europe and the US, which is this, this question of the Inflation Reduction Act, the kind of quite substantial in, environmental subsidies and the way they're designed in a quite protect, protectionist manner to not include um, European uh, manufacturers. Uh, there's a bit of a temptation at the moment, particularly within the EU, to respond to the IRA with its own subsidies. Uh, in the UK, there's been a bit of discussion about it and demands for more subsidies for that kind of green tech to compete with the US. Um, do you think that there is this potential, that, uh, particularly we've been talking about the EU, potentially also with the UK, to reach some kind of a, a cross-country compromise on that topic? And what do you think about the kind of broader policy space, the implications of all these uh, subsidies going into this space? I do find it alarming the extent of subsidization that has been rolled out by the Biden administration. We saw not only with the, the subsidies for, for green energy initiatives, EVs, that sort of thing, but also with the, the CHIPS Act, over $50 billion in subsidies for, for CHIPS for semiconductor manufacturing in the US. And let's face it, subsidies are a form of protection. And so we have seen a, a big increase in protection under the Biden administration. And I do worry about this sort of escalation of, of subsidization across the Atlantic. My own view is that both sides would probably be better served not trying to pick winners and losers, but rather maintaining a tax code and a regulatory regime that broadly incentivizes capital formation. Because we, we, it's not just about being able to manufacture semiconductors. It's not just about $50 billion in subsidies for semiconductors. There's a whole supply chain. There are downstream and upstream linkages. And I think it's folly for, for policymakers to presume that they can, they can zoom in, swoop in, and, and, and subsidize one sector, and there we go. As I said, I would be much more focused on improving cost recovery for business investment, just creating the, 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 tax, the right tax incentives to, to incentivize domestic capital formation and move away from this sort of subsidy arms race, uh, which, according to the latest estimates, it's $1.2 trillion over 10 years in the IRA in subsidies. So the, the Congressional Budget Office initially scored it, I think, at about $350 billion, something like that. Uh, but then Goldman Sachs went and looked, and because so many of these subsidies are uncapped, they actually estimate that it's going to be $1.2 trillion over 10 years. That is, that is a big sum, and that is a lot of protection. Wow, it's quite extraordinary and kind of interesting note to finish on, which brings us back to our initial point about getting the underlying institutional environment right for economic growth rather than uh, trying all those other apparently nifty but potentially quite expensive and, and unhelpful policies. Um, thank you so much, Tyler, for joining the IA podcast. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, if you're enjoying the IA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or you can also watch the IA podcast 
on YouTube. Please do tune in again next week for uh, our next edition.